That was awesome. <clears throat> we need to sing out of the Red Book more. I like that. That was great. Well, we've been going through the book of Hebrews for a long time now, it seems. So I thought we'd just keep going through the book of Hebrews this morning. Turning to Hebrews chapter 11, we come to one of the most infamous chapters in all of the Bible. You know, 1 Corinthians 13, we sometimes call that the love chapter. Hebrews chapter 11, we ought to call that the faith chapter. What we find in Hebrews chapter 11 is that our author, almost rapid fire, interjects everything that he's been saying. That is, in Hebrews chapter 10, he begins um, to introduce the idea of Christian persecution and the need for endurance that Christians have and how we should push onward. As a matter of fact, if you looked really fast in your Bibles at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, it would make sense if we skipped all of chapter 11, went straight to Hebrews 12, verse 3, and picked up, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. But he doesn't do that, does he? He pauses in the middle and gives us this long list of faithful, faithful fathers of the church. When I say fathers of the church, I simply mean those who lived by faith before us. Now, what's fun about that this morning is even though we've been going through Hebrews for a long time, uh, there's a teaching technique that is uh, profitable for people with ADHD. I don't know if you know what ADHD is, attention deficit hyper disorder or so-called disorder. Turns out people have limited attention spans. And um, when you're teaching somebody with a significantly um, short attention span, what are you supposed to do with them? Are you, are you supposed to give them extra time on their test and help them to study and all of these different things? In my mind, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense that you're taking somebody who has no concept of time and giving them more time. That sounds like torture to me. If I was struggling to keep my focus, the last thing I would want is to work on something longer. You know what I would want? Unlimited breaks. Unlimited interruptions. That means I can get up from whatever I'm doing, walk around, reset my mind, come back to it, maybe work in shorter stints of time. Now, our, for our graduates, one thing you, you might realize is now that you're leaving school, you get to find whatever work pattern works best for you. Bless God, I think you're going to enjoy that. Um, for me, that does mean getting up and walking around pretty often. But let me ask you this. Hebrews chapter 11 is a godsend for us because it interrupts this long discourse on who Christ is and how He's greater in all of these things that we might turn to what the actual answer for endurance is. This morning, I've got three sermons for you. Not one, not two, three. Now some of you are saying, watch out preacher, three strikes and you're out. I'll take the warning, but I'll let you know I'm accountable to God and not you. So we're going to do three sermons this morning. I'm excited about that. They all focus on one topic. That is, what is faith? Why is this relevant then at all to 
our understanding of getting this endurance. How does this connect the end of Hebrews chapter 10 to Hebrews chapter 12? What is the connection found in faith? Well, let's just start by looking at a definition of faith and see if it doesn't come together for us. I won't give you all the answers this morning. I'll make you ponder it. And if you have questions after the three sermons this morning, you can come and ask me. You can come and ask somebody else. You can go study on your own. I can give you resources to go and study on your own. But I think we'll get through it because there's a connection here between endurance and faith. And our answer, well, it doesn't come from me. It comes from the Bible. So let us bow in prayer. Our Father in heaven, bless us this morning. I ask that not in a material sense of things or property or God, even just in good fortune. I ask that you'd bless us with an understanding of your word. Because your word tells me that there's nothing more valuable than that. So God, I ask that you would open the eyes of our heart this morning, that we might be able to behold the awesome truth that is found in your law that you would not only give us understanding, but that you would help us to leave this place putting these things into practice. God, comfort our weary hearts and give us strength for three whole sermons. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Text comes from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 7. If you turn to chapter 12, you should just have to turn one page now, and you'll be right there with us. The Bible says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that, when, that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith. Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he could not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Well, we begin then this morning, uh, before we even get to our first sermon, with a simple definition of faith. Our author says in verse 1, very plainly, faith is, it gives us a plain definition, but there's two parts to this definition, and the second explains the first. So that is, we have two things that define faith. Faith is simply the assurance of things hoped for. We need nothing more than that than to understand that faith means that the things that we long for, the things that we cannot see, the things that are unknown to us are not held in some speculative sense of reasoning, but rather it's something we hold with assurance. Assurance. That means that we have confidence in it. 
The second part of the definition is that these things hoped for, we might understand those as the conviction of things not seen. That means not only are, is faith related to um, things that we are assured will come to pass, but we are convicted. Our heart is stirred towards these things. Our, our heart's not just sitting sure that these things would come, but our heart is prompted in the present sense. Even though that we know these things are coming in the future, we live for them in the present. By these definitions... We should be leery of many of the placations that have infiltrated many of the definitions of faith in the church. Slow down. That was a placations. That was a weird word that I threw in there. By the Bible's own definition of faith, we should be hesitant to embrace the simple childlike teaching that we have often ascribed to defining what faith is. Here's what I mean by that. Sometimes we talk about faith and we put it in the sense of, well, faith is simply trusting in something that you cannot see. That's a very good definition for a child. Look around this morning. I'm not speaking to children. We need to grow past this definition of faith and saying that it's not just trusting things that we cannot see. Rather, it's seeing things that cannot be seen. Faith isn't trust. Faith isn't guesswork. Faith isn't speculative reasoning. Faith is a spiritual spectacle that you are able to put on in order to see and to understand what cannot be physically seen by men. You hear me? Faith is spiritual spectacles that you can put on. It helps you to see things that are invisible. You might say, well... Faith lets you see things that cannot be seen. It seems like this morning I've already started speaking in circles with definitions that that don't necessarily make sense. This is some sort of religious higgledy-piggledy, piggledy-wiggledy strangeness. Seeing things that cannot be seen. But if we believe what the Bible says, we believe the Bible's own definition of faith, then we will see that faith is more than religious nonsense. It's viable. It's a reality. It's there for anyone who is blessed with the conviction of the Holy Spirit to embrace it. That's my definition of faith. We have an immediate application of such a definition in verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. I want you to consider that for just a moment. By faith, I have confidence before you this morning to say that I know how the world was created. I have confidence and conviction and assurance and surety in the fact that God spoke everything in this world into existence. With His Word, He brought forward matter, And by matter, he brought forward time. There is no doubt in my mind that this is how the universe came to be. Now, how all those things came together and this way and that way and it developed forward from there and was it mature or was it not mature? I don't know. 
The Bible doesn't give me all of the details of creation. It tells me that God created the world with his spoken word. That he created everything inside of creation with his spoken word. That's what I'm confident in. That's what I'm assured of. How could I know that? I wasn't there. Someone would say, don't you believe that there was some sort of cosmic event that happened at some point in time where an infinitely mass, an infinitely small point of matter simply erupted and began expanding at an exponential rate and all of these things came together. I believe that because that's what the scientists tell me. That's what all the people, you know, who know how to study these things how, and have been trained in such things, that's what they tell me happened. What foolishness to say that that isn't faith. The scientists weren't there. And you're telling me that you believe that it's more reasonable that I should jump up in an aeroplane, fly over the Sahara Desert, maybe I'd take with me a, a box of several sets of Scrabble letters, that I'd dump those out of the aeroplane and somewhere down in the flat Sahara Desert I would find Shakespearean sonnets. It takes a lot of faith to believe what you're telling me to believe. My faith comes from the authority of one greater than scientists, one greater than those trained. My authority comes from the spoken word of God. So I have confidence that the universe was created by the word of God. I can see things that are not possible to be seen. What is seen was not made out of things that are visible, the Bible says. That means that I can peer into the past and I can know what God is saying is true. Well, if I can peer into the fast I, past, I can also peer into the present, can I not? I can peer into the present circumstances of my lives, the lives of the people that I care about, the lives of the people that I love. I can peer into the present and I can believe what God says about them. Depraved, wicked, unregenerate without the touch of God in their lives. Well, it's no wonder our world looks the way that it does. But what comes next? Is it going to get better? It's going to get a lot better. I can peer into the future things unseen. Things unseen and promised by God. The confidence in my endurance, the things hoped for, everything that God has promised. I can peer far forward, seeing the glories of heaven and the time that I would be able to dwell and walk with God. Just wait till we get with Enoch. I don't have to wait very long, do I? By faith, I can see what cannot be seen. We have a definition of faith then. Let's get to our first sermon first sermon looks at the life of Abel. Find Abel mentioned in verse 4. And it, it really is just verse 4. Whole sermon from verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Well, here we find the life of one of our Faithful forefathers, one of our faithful forerunners of the faith, Abel. 
If you want to know about Abel, you'll need to turn to Genesis chapter 4. As a matter of fact, if you wouldn't mind turning there now, I'd like to read verse 2 through verse 7. Just so we understand who Abel is and who his life was and what it means that by faith he offered a sacrifice to God that was more acceptable to Cain, let us read from Genesis chapter 4 verse 2. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Just for a moment, let's recap. We know that Abel and Cain are the first brothers, the first children born of Adam and Eve after the fall of man. So after sin has entered the world, and we have to put this in perspective... Eve has been given a promise in Genesis 3.15 that out from her, her descendant will come to crush Satan's head. This is the first prophecy foretelling of Jesus Christ. Imagine Eve's anticipation as she got pregnant. Could this be it? Are things going to be restored? Are we going to go back to the garden and live with God? Go back to where we were before I screwed everything up? Just imagine the anticipation. She has one child. All right, not that one. We'll try again. She has a second child. And by their names, um, well, just a second. I'm not going to preach from Genesis 4. I'm going to preach from Hebrews 11. We're looking at Genesis 4, so I'll avoid that rabbit hole. But there's a lot to be said there. What's significant from Hebrews chapter 11 is that Abel was able to make an offering to God. And we know this is significant because Cain... His brother was not able to make a sacrifice to God. God rejected his offering. Now, this is remarkable. He accepts Abel's. He rejects Cain's. On what basis does God reject either one of these persons' offerings? We look in the text in Genesis 4, and we know that Abel was a shepherd. And so he brought a fat portion. And it turns out God likes the smell of burnt bacon. Wait a second. No. No, it wasn't because he brought fat. In fact, even looking at the Levitical laws, there are some prescriptions in which it would be necessary for somebody to bring a grain offering in the same way that Cain did. Well, what was the distinction then? Why was it that God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's sacrifice? We actually find the answer not in Genesis, but in Hebrews. Do you know why God accepted Abel's offering instead of Cain's? Because he brought it by faith. The example of Abel, and really this first sermon, if you want a title for it, is faith in worship. This is a significant, significant exhortation for the church as we remember that God does not necessarily prescribe for us the way in which we are to worship every single time. He does give us some regulative principles, but He is more concerned with the attitude or the heart of the person coming to worship. Are you coming to church begrudging? Are you coming to church sorrowful? Are you coming to church unstirred? Are you coming to church where your heart is not in it? 
Are you concerned with the things of the kingdom or are you concerned with the things of your own private life and the things of your world? What made Abel a significant contributor to it, being a father of faith, the good old faith of our fathers, is that as he brought a sacrifice to God, he brought it in faith. You can bring all sorts of sacrifices to God. You can bring the biggest tithe check in the church. You can do all sorts of things, and if it's done with a heartless attitude, it means nothing. God continues to reinforce the same principle. Later, as the nation of Israel would grow, as the priests would become curmudgeon, as the priests would become unintentional in the way that they worshipped God. And you don't have to turn here, but listen, maybe write it down in the margins. Malachi chapter 1, verse 10 through 12. God says to the people, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. God says to his own people, if you continue to come to me with a heartless attitude, it would be better that the doors in our modern equivalent of the church are shut. That you would not continue to show up with a heartless attitude because it means nothing to me. He goes on, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to the setting my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Our attitude in worship means everything to God. When He commands a pure worship, He commands a people that are stirred, that are living by faith that aren't doing things blindly, rather a people who are doing things where they can see what cannot be seen. The purpose of man's existence is that we would glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The reason you and I exist is for God's glory. Let's make sure we put this in the right order. We do not exist to glorify God because He needs us to glorify Him. We exist to glorify God. He created us and is glorified in doing such. Malachi chapter 1 verse 12 tells us of the day when all incense burned will be burned for the sake of glorifying God and it will be a pure offering. Such purification, such purgification of heartless worship is necessary for the people of God who live by faith, who can see things that cannot be seen, who are not confused or confounded by what's taking place in the church, but rather are aware of what God is calling us to. One application for this first sermon this morning. Make sure your heart is in what you're doing. If what you're doing isn't glorifying God and your heart's still in it, well, you better start living by faith. Start running to God that what you want to do would change. If you're doing what seems to glorify God in the eyes of man and you're doing it without faith, it would be better to pull back. 
and to focus on your relationship with God. There is nothing else that matters in worship. Our worship of God begins in the heart, and it overflows from that. You want a second sermon? Oh, good job. Thank you for saying yes. Let's look at the life of Enoch. Enoch. Everyone say that. Enoch. No, no, no. I heard some Ks. I know you want to say Enoch. That would be a K. It's Enoch. Enoch. So let's look at the life of Enoch. Verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he could not, should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. If looking at the life of Abel gave us faith in worship... When we look at the life of Enoch, what we find is faith in our everyday life. To find the life of Enoch, we need to turn back to Genesis chapter 5. It's very short. The whole of his life is found in verse 21 through 24. The Bible says, When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years And he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. How do you like that? Three verses for 365 years of life. And yet he's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 as one of the great fathers of faith. He only gets three verses out of 365 years, and yet the Bible mentions him in Hebrews chapter 11 as one of the fathers of faith. What could be so significant about Enoch's life? Well, I don't think the first 65 years were all that significant. I think he lived like everyone who came before him. But something happened when he turned 65. What happened when he turned 65? You can shout it out to me. It's it's okay. That's right. He's just now getting to the age where he gets discounted prices on airplane rides and he gets discounted prices as he goes into the Whataburger. What else happened? He retired. Look at Genesis chapter 5, verse 21. What happened when he turned 65? He had a son. I think this is incredibly significant because I've heard it in testimonies of the church the entire time that I've been involved in ministry. And we saw this trend several years ago in the church, didn't we? When, when those who were raised in church would leave and they wouldn't come back and they'd live their life and they'd do their own thing and, and, uh, and, and they live their own way and, and maybe they're not even sure about this whole God thing anyway, but you know what? They're going to live their life. There's something that happens though. When you're in a delivery room and out pops life and you're holding a baby and you're looking this baby in the eyes and you go, my God created you. It sure wasn't me. 
Everything that I'm beholding right now came from God. And I want to protect you, little one. I want to do my best to provide for you. I want to make you happy. I want to give you the things that your heart desires. More than that, little one, I want to see you smile and laugh. I don't want to discipline you. I want what's best for you, and I want to protect you from the evil in this world because, gosh darn it, I'm getting discounts at Whataburger. In 65 years, I've seen a whole lot of evil. And I want to shelter you from that, and I don't want you to have to experience the heartache that I've experienced. I don't want your heart to be broken. Something happens when these fall-away church members have children. That little child brings them closer to God than ever before. They return to church, recognizing that all the desire that they have to protect this person, to bring their heart's desires to reality, simply is not possible without an authoritative truth regulating everything that they do in life, without the love and compassion and design that God has instituted for us by His Word. So these people come back to church, little ones in their arm, dropping them off at the nursery, crying and screaming. Something changed in Enoch's life when he became a father. Something really, really special changed in his life, not just in the sense of fatherhood, but Enoch walked with God. Now, we often refer to Enoch, and we mention him as one of two people in the Bible that never died. Elijah and Enoch never died. They lived on the earth. They were with God. Where did they go? I don't know. They were with God. They went up. They went down. They disappeared to another plane. I don't know. They went with God. I can say that with confidence because I have faith. I can see it. I know that they're with God. But Enoch didn't walk with God after he was taken up, did he? When does Enoch begin walking with God? Was it after 365 years when God came and took him, when he was and then he was not? Or does he begin walking with God at age 65 and he walks with him for 300 years beyond that while he lives on earth? He lives with him. He walks with him while he's on earth. There is no waiting for the the church to walk with God. There is no waiting for the things hoped for. It's not just the conviction of things hoped for in the future that sets before us what it would mean to walk with God and dwell with Him in heaven. But by faith, loved ones, if you're putting on these spectacles of faith, you are walking with God in the present. You are seeing Him, as it were, face to face. Now, what's that mean? That's an anthropomorphism. God doesn't have a face other than the Son. Definitely has a face, but... um, What does that mean to see God face to face? It means that you're living your life by faith in such accord that you are in the physical presence of God. It's manifest around you. It's tangible. This is something that we experience when we are on fire for God. 
when we're stirred up for Him, when our heart is compelled by the things that He says. To live life in faith means not just to wait for the day that I would get to walk with God, but the time now that I get to walk with Him. The days that as I I live my life, as I go about my days, as I go to a restaurant, God gives me words to say. As I meet with a grieving, grieving parent, God gives me words of compassion that could not come from me. Even such that a 30-year-old know-it-all preacher can stand up in a pulpit and not speak with the authority of his own know-it-allness, but with the authority of God behind him because he has walked with God all the week before this. What are you doing here listening to a 30-year-old? You guys are nuts. You know way more than I do. Way more mature than I do. Maybe some of you listening, some of you aren't. That's fine. What are you doing here? Did you come to hear what I had to say or did you come to hear what God had to say? Came to hear what God had to say, right? By golly, someone say amen. You came to hear what God had to say. Amen? We're interested in what God wants for our lives. We're interested in how God is moving in our lives. And I don't just want to be encouraged for another week that I might be able to make it until the day that I fall in a grave somewhere, that somebody would figure out what to do with my rotting body, that I could be with God, but that I would live from day to day stirred up by His presence in my life. That I would walk with Him until the day that either He comes back or that I go to Him. By such faith that I wouldn't even taste death. Now do you say that that's possible? Or do you doubt me? Do you not believe me? Because what faith takes is simply putting on the glasses. To know that this is real takes nothing more than to simply look at the Bible and to look at the example set for us by Enoch in walking by faith in God. The application of our second sermon is not difficult. It's that leery warning I gave us at the beginning that we should be leery of such simplifications of what faith is. What makes the definition of trust so good is that all we have to do is put the glasses on. To behold everything that we have up to this point discussed. You ready for a third sermon? You're not supposed to be getting more excited. This is like a revival meeting all in one. You're getting three sermons in one morning. Hold on tight. You ready for a third sermon? Amen. Let's look at Noah. Verse 7. Oh wait, I'm not done with Enoch. Just a second. I want you to point and notice that in Genesis chapter 4, there is no mention of faith in all of Enoch's life. It simply says that he walks with God and that he pleased him. Our author in Hebrews gives us a valiant description of why that faith was so significant. Because without faith, what do we learn in looking at the life of Abel? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Right? So worship comes by faith. If worship comes by faith, how is it possible that Enoch pleased God? He had faith. Duh. All right, good. Now we can go to our third sermon. Verse 7. By faith, 
Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Wonderful life, Noah. Unfortunately, his life's a bit longer than Abel and Enoch in in the sense of, of the biblical record. So if you would like to know more about Noah's life, please reference Genesis chapter 6. I'm not going to read all of it. Instead, we simply need to ask, who was this Noah guy? In verse 9, Genesis 6 verse 9 gives us the answer. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And Noah, like Enoch, walked with God. Noah, being warned by God, boy, something significant happened. Now, I wasn't sure. You know, we had the flood a few years ago. Well, last year. Remember, it flooded this neighborhood behind the church. Many of us contributed and helped with our time and with our, our efforts to help some of that. that um, it's not rehabilitation. Well, we, we went and helped with some of these houses that got a lot of flood damage. I mean, a lot past the power outlets. And um, I spent several weeks ripping out drywall and carpet and spraying who knows what? I've probably got cancer from that, sorry. But uh, spraying that on the two by fours and everything else. And then what happened Friday as our seniors are walking across the graduation stage and another deluge comes beyond them? Well, not long after that, I, was, I wasn't at the graduation, I was at my house, and there was a river flowing through my backyard. I haven't seen that since I lived in Bella Vista when I had a ravine in my backyard. A river flowing through my backyard. I went and got Michelle. You got to come see this. Our fence is coming down. Surely something's about to blow. Maybe the water's going to come into our house. Do we have flood insurance? I mean, the conversation, it was, it was some serious conversations we were having. I watched as the water pooled up on the street, got higher and higher. I waited until it got to the middle until I started taking a video. There was a lot of rain. In Noah's day, God told him there was a lot of rain coming. Some people don't believe that it ever rained before Noah's time. I'm not sure about that, if that's speculation or not. Um, I think there's a decent case to be made for it. Could you imagine, though, if that's true? People didn't even know rain was coming, and here's Noah saying it's about to flood. What's significant about Noah? Among all these people, God gave him a warning telling him that a flood that would cover the whole earth would come. You know what I find really interesting about people that would like to discredit the Bible's authority? Especially those who are hooked into the scientific, you know, I believe in science, you know, those people. Those people who say it's impossible to believe by faith that everything was created by God's Word. I'd much rather believe that, you know plane flying over the Sahara Desert made Shakespearean sonnets. You know what blows my mind? Those people always ignore the flood. You know what's remarkable about the flood? Every civilization in our world today that has ancient texts that we can go back and find has some sort of record of a worldwide flood. The Epic of Gilgamesh some of you don't know the Epic of Gilgamesh, that's all right. It is the oldest 
manuscript that has ever been found. Today, tells of a worldwide flood. The Atrahasis, the ruins of Nippur, the Sataparthra Barhamana, which is a Hindu text, tells of a worldwide flood. Well, that's just that part of the world. What about this part of the world? Was it really a worldwide flood? Did you know that the Cheyenne Indians, they have a lore telling of a great flood that shaped the Missouri River? All these people want to argue the authority of the Bible and they... They always ignore the flood. But we find in the historical record, the people who are actually there, the people who could actually see, the people who don't necessarily need faith to see things that were unseen, that they record a telling of a worldwide flood. What do we know about the worldwide flood? We know that someone survived. Noah, his children, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, their wives, his wife, We know that they survived because they were warned by God concerning the events as yet unseen and in reverent fear. That's a worship word again. In reverent fear, they constructed an ark for the saving of Noah's household. See, looking at the life of Abel, we saw what faith looks like in worship. Looking at the life of Enoch, we saw what faith looks like in life. Looking at the life of Noah, we find what faith looks like in public. Now stick with me. It's not just enough to be able to see the things that are yet unseen and to know that God is there to walk with Him and to dwell with Him. Because if we do all of these things in a way that we ought, then we naturally, here's a third sermon, share our faith. That doesn't just mean sharing what we believe with people, but that means sharing why we believe it. Because we've actually experienced it. It's not academic. It's not something in our head. It's not because, well, you see, I read the Bible, and the Bible says. That's a great place to start if you're talking about the authority of the Bible. However, when we're sharing our faith, I believe where we begin is, I walk with God on a daily basis, and I could not do anything without Him because, well... I had a child named Methuselah whenever I was 65 years, and it changed my life. That's where we begin. When we live our faith in public, it begins just like Noah, being warned by God concerning the events yet unseen. Are you warned of events yet unseen? Stick with me for a second, because God promised, as I was sitting out in my sunroom watching the river form in my backyard, I knew that the whole world would not be flooded again. I knew that because God promised never to do it again. How long did it take Noah to build this ark? Who knows? The Bible mentions 125 years in verse 3, I believe, in in chapter 6 of Genesis. Something like that. However long it took God to build this ark, the world was waiting. So I ask you, if you put on your faith spectacles this morning and you ask, who is this God that I'm supposed to see yet unseen? How am I supposed to know Him? What kind of a God is He? He is a patient God waiting for these generations to repent, to turn away from sinfulness and the ways of the world that they might come to Him. Because every day that Noah lived his life out in public building an ark like a lunatic... And people looked at him, hey, what's going on with that Noah guy? I don't know, he's still building that boat thing. 
Never seen a boat before in my whole life. Whatever he is doing, he's crazy. He proclaimed before all of them. As a matter of fact, look in our text, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. What does Noah do in that second sentence? He condemns those who would not live by faith. When you fail to live your faith in public, you fail to condemn those who deserve condemnation. Wait, back up just a second, brother. You mean we're supposed to be condemning the world? If you're living faithfully, you already are. Because you know God. The world stands condemned because the testimony of God is already present in our reality. What have we learned so far looking at the book of Hebrews? That in the days of our fathers, God spoke to the people by prophets. Now He has come manifest in the Son. We have a better testimony. You've got to go back to 2020 to hear that sermon. That's all the way in Hebrews chapter 1. We have a better testimony because of God. The world stands condemned. And listen to me, we have a patient God those 120 years, five years, however long it was that God was being patient before the deluge of rain fell upon the earth and the whole earth was filled with rain. That waiting ran out and the world was flooded. And while God promises not to flood the earth again, you know what else He promises to do? To purify this earth not with water but with fire. This world will perish. I've got my faith spectacles on. I can tell you it's real. This whole world will perish in fire. It will burn up. It will turn to a crisp. It will be cast away. And what will God do? But He says that He will separate the wheat from the chaff. Those who live with one foot in faith and one foot in the world shall be separated and blown away by the wind. But when we live by faith, when we're stirred up in our heart, when we worship God like Abel, when we live our lives like Enoch, when we testify through those lives like Noah, we will be saved. Because God is our salvation. I have no fear of putting on my faith spectacles and looking at the fiery future of the world. No fear whatsoever, because I know where I'm going to be. Safe with God. And I know what comes after that. With a new earth and a new heaven. When God shall descend from the heavens a new Jerusalem coming out of the clouds, landing and civilization will once again be pure, undefiled by sin. When being immature no longer separates people who are just awkward. When we're able to get along. When the church is able to be glorified, not just, not just in their testimony or their faithfulness, but the church will be glorified because Christ will walk among us. Noah, being warned by God concerning the events yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of the household. You, church, have been told of a day coming of judgment. Where is your reverent fear? I've given you three sermons, and I've asked you to make application each time. I asked you to bring your whole heart to worship. I asked you to live your whole life for God. This third sermon concludes with a final application. Be concerned for the people around you.
They're watching you. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but when people find out a Christ, you're a Christian, they watch you. Michelle was saved early in life. In fact, late in life, her wedding present from me was a Bible. Now, I don't commend um, evangelical dating. It's typically just not very fruitful. You should not date people with thinking that you can get them saved. You find someone that's equally yoked with you that's already saved. Don't be stupid, young people, all right? Now, I was stupid, and I dated an unsaved girl, and that's all right because I wasn't very mature in my faith anyway. God worked all things out. He prompted me to surrender to the ministry as a result of this. Michelle made a proclamation of faith and was baptized. The first thing she wanted, she wanted to get a necklace with a cross on it. And I just remember thinking, oh, watch out. Everyone's going to watch you as soon as you put that cross on. You're still being sanctified, girl. <coughs> People who don't believe in the Bible still know what it says. They know it says, do not lie, do not steal, do not covet. Do not live for this world. <coughs> and they'll watch you. They'll watch you lie and say, that's what I thought. They'll watch you steal and say, I knew it. They'll watch you live for the world with an ambition for your career that is greater than the kingdom of God, and they'll say, you're just like me. <coughs> if you live with your faith spectacles on all the time, you see what's coming. And you know how important it is that not only that you would live your life for God, but that you would make a public testimony for Him in everything that you do. Would you bow with me and pray? Our Father, we come to you this morning with humble hearts, recognizing, God, that we are a people with a natural proclivity to turn away from you. God, we are a people who naturally run away from your word, that rebel, that want to be blind. God, we wake up in the morning and see these spectacles of faith sitting on our end table and and we have no interest in putting them on because it's easier to live in this world blinded. God, I pray that you would help us to put on these spectacles, to live by the example of the fathers of faith, that we would have a good old faith that teaches us not only to worship you, but to live our lives and to proclaim our lives before our friends. God, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we prepare to sing?